Ephesians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Thank you, John, praise team, everybody for leading us in worship. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. This is not my illustration, but I'm going to use it, and it has to do with Sherlock Holmes and his fellow companion, Dr. Watson. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, they went on a camping trip one evening. After a good meal, they lay down for the night under their tent, and they went to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes woke up, and he nudged his faithful friend, Dr. Watson. He said, Watson, look up at the sky. Tell me what you see. Well, Watson replied, I see millions and millions of stars. And Sherlock Holmes asked, well, what does that tell you? And Watson pondered for a minute. And he said, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is at approximately a quarter past three in the middle of the night. Theologically, I can see that God is omnipotent and that we are all small and insignificant. And meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Watson then asked, Holmes... What does it tell you? And Sherlock Holmes was silent for a minute, and then he spoke. Watson, you meathead! Someone has stolen our tent! (laughs) I'll let you think about that one for a moment. We overcomplicate things sometimes, and sometimes in doing so, we miss the obvious. We can miss the obvious Last week, we introduced a new section of this book of Ephesians, and it really focuses in on the church in a specific way, and how the church, the body of Jesus, this multi-ethnic, multi-gifted, multi-generational group of people are now united in Christ. The nations in Christ become one. And so, what we've seen that Paul has already established the identity of the church in this book. He'll continue on that theme as we go about who we were, who we are, but now in this section that we started last week and into this week, he establishes the unity of the church, which is really what I preached on last week, and I summarized this section in this way, in Christ, or in Jesus, hostility ends and unity begins. This does not mean uniformity. There's going to be disagreements. Some of you think it's hot in here, others of you think it's cold. Others of you, when you go into the restroom, you think the toilet paper should be pulled from the top. The others of you think it should be pulled from the bottom. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you probably live a much more content life than myself. (laughs) Others of you think that the peanut butter should go on one slice of bread and the jelly on the other slice of bread and then put together. Others of you think it goes peanut butter, then jelly, and then that clean piece of bread goes on top. If you're the second camp, you would be the right ones, right? (laughs) But... Unity does not mean uniformity. There's going to be disagreements. But it's as Paul says in Galatians, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. In Jesus there's neither slave nor free. In Jesus there's neither male nor female. For you are all, every single one of you, in Christ. You are one in Christ Jesus. All nations in Jesus are one. Our complete identity, as we've seen, is wrapped up in Jesus, and so is our unity. It's all of Jesus. In Christ, hostility ends and unity begins.
But still in speaking about the church, as we continue his train of thought into chapter 3, today I want us to see that in Christ, Jesus, the mystery of the church is revealed and is realized. In Jesus, the mystery of the church is revealed and is realized. Now, I could talk to you today about these two areas of theology, covenant theology and dispensationalism, especially at 8 a.m. in the morning, right? I could really get you going with these two areas of theology. They're distant, different systems of theology. And if you don't know much about these two, I encourage you to go research them this week because I guarantee they've influenced your interpretation of Scripture. And there are various views or interpretation methods for seeing God and His Word and His movement throughout history, in the present, and going forward. They are systems of thought that have been developed to try to explain how does God deal with man in the salvation process throughout history. But more specifically, what these two areas or theologies tend to deal with is the role of Israel and the church in God's plan of salvation. The role of Israel and the church and the relationship of the church to geopolitical Israel is where the big debate really gets going. And a lot has been said on this. A lot has been written on it. A lot of books. It's almost overwhelming. And believers, true evangelical believers, even the Southern Baptist denomination, are almost split on these theologies and the approach to them. And out of this disagreement has come a wave of overcomplicating things. Not to say that this isn't complicating matters, but it has come a wave of overcomplicating things. And for many, just like in Paul's day, in so doing, many have missed the obvious. So today what I want you to do is just let the text simply speak for itself, as we should always do. Don't overcomplicate. Don't put God's word in a doctrinal box or in your box of presuppositions. Read it, be open to it, and let the word of God speak into your life and respond to it. For this is what Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner, truly when he's writing this, he is in at least house arrest in Rome, most likely. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, that the Gentiles are members of the same body, that the Gentiles are partakers of the promise in, there's that word in again, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, don't lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, when I was in middle school in Ponca City, I lived in this house right here. 6th Street, 304, this historic neighborhood in Ponca City. This house, I think, was built in the 19-teens, I think, somewhere around that time period. And I grew up in this house. We moved there when I was in kindergarten, and my parents just moved out, like, in the last two to three years. I've got a lot of memories at this house. And one of those is, when I was in middle school, one evening I was playing NCAA football on, like, the PlayStation 2 with my dad. And no doubt it was probably OU versus Texas because he's a massive Texas fan and I'm an OU fan. Sorry, OSU fans. And so we were playing this NCAA football. It was a quiet, nice evening. And all of a sudden my mom and my sister and them, they come into the room and they say, Jonathan, you need to pause the game. You need to go outside. We need to go up to the apartment. Now, behind the house, there was this garage separated from the house. And above that was this apartment. This was true of almost every house on this neighborhood. And we really kind of used that apartment kind of as a guest house, kind of a two-bedroom kind of thing. And so they said, you got to go up to the apartment with us. Now, this is nighttime. It's dark outside, and I have no idea what this is about. And they were acting really peculiar, very weird. And as we're walking out to the apartment, they're not telling me what we're doing and why we're doing it. And the way it looked, or the way it happened, is that you go into through this door, and then it would lead to these stairs that would go up to a landing, and at that landing there was a door that would go into the apartment. So we go up those stairs, and it's dark, like pitch dark, and I'm not putting together why they're not turning on the lights, they're not telling me anything, and at some point they go just quiet even as we're walking up the stairs, and then I go through the door, and the apartment is pitch dark. But I'm literally, as I'm staring into the darkness, I begin to see kind of this little light flash. And the next moment, all the lights pop on, the room or the apartment is full of people, silly strings going everywhere, and everybody yells, surprise, surprise. It was my first and last surprise party, by the way. Don't try to pull this off again, because I do not like surprise parties. But that's what it was, a surprise birthday party. And now I go from a quiet evening playing NCAA football with my dad to now a massive sleepover with some kids I would not have invited to this party. Okay, let's just say that. My mom was in charge of it. But anyways, that surprise party was a mystery. It was a mystery now revealed. And the mystery revealed shed light on the peculiar words that were being said by my mom and my siblings and the peculiar actions that were carried out by my family. 
the words and actions that did not make sense until the mystery was revealed. Ah, now I understand why you're acting weird. Now I understand why you didn't turn on the lights. Now I understand why you made me pause the game and go up to the apartment for no good reason. Now I understand. And when the mystery was revealed, the plan was realized. See, the party was planned beforehand, and once the surprise was revealed, the party happened. It was realized. And this works in mystery books, mystery movies. Take M. Night Shyamalan, for example. He's the one behind movies like The Village, Signs, The Sixth Sense. But his movies nearly always carry a mystery that is ultimately revealed and realized at the end. It's his left big left hook. And that revelation and realization gives clarity on everything else throughout the movie. Oh, now it makes sense. Now I understand why that happened. Now I understand why they said that. Now I get it. Well, Jesus talked about not putting new cloth on old garments. He talked about not putting new wine into old wineskins. What Jesus was up to was something radically new. And as we learn in the Old Testament, even if God were to tell us, we still wouldn't believe it. And even though it was foretold, it was a mystery. I mean, God himself taking on flesh, the fullness of deity, becoming a human being. And then him living a perfect, sinless life, even though he's tempted in every respect that we were tempted, and then dying for sinners, and then coming back from the dead in bodily resurrection. No one saw that coming. Even when Jesus tried to tell his disciples about it multiple times, no one saw it coming. It was a mystery. The gospel now revealed and now realized. No one saw it coming. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age understood it. Why? Because if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory, which meant victory for Jesus and his bride and defeat for them. Had they understood it, they wouldn't have done it. But there's another part of this mystery that no one saw coming, even though it also was foretold. And it's a mystery that has now been revealed and realized in Jesus. This is what Paul is getting at. This is the mystery that has now been revealed in Christ. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs. That in Jesus, the Gentiles are members of the same body. There is no absolute separation in Jesus between Jews and Gentiles. There is no, well, I'm a Jew, you're a Gentile, so we have this separation and all that. There's none of that in in Jesus. And this is Paul's main preaching ministry. This is why he was imprisoned and beaten so often. In Jesus, there was none of that. In Jesus, Gentiles are partakers of the promise. That's huge because in Galatians, Paul talked about this as well. The promise that was given to Abraham and to his offspring. Paul says that's singular, referring to Jesus. And Abraham came well before there was a Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, and you got the 12 tribes of the nation, well before Mount Sinai and the law and all that. Gentiles in Jesus are partakers of the promise. As Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, fear not 
little flock. And as we know throughout his teaching, as we know throughout the New Testament, the little flock, his sheep, are those who, what, have placed faith in him, who have received him, who have believed in him, who love him. Fear not, little flock, whether you are Jew or Gentile, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The mystery is that the two have become one in Jesus. They are the church, the body of Jesus. Now the question is, is what's the purpose? What was the plan of it? Paul tells us that through the church, the body of Jesus, where the two become one, that through the church, God's wisdom would be made known to all creation. In other words, so that the entire scope of creation would now see what God had been up to since forever and what he will be up to for forever, the church. His eternal purpose was the church. The church. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, that he was given as head of the church to the church or for the church. And this is amazing, and we cannot miss its significance. And we must understand that denominations, traditions, buildings, the one we're sitting in, these are man-made, but the church is God-made. The church is a group of people in which all walls of hostility have been torn down, in which all sins have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, in which the love of God dwells richly within each person, in which all have been brought into an eternal everlasting relationship with this holy, righteous God. This is God's plan for the church. And it was a mystery for ages, but now been fully revealed. Not just to us, but to all creation. No one saw God establishing in Jesus a multi-ethnic people and dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God who would be filled with the grace and power of God and who would live in the Spirit and in that grace and power and love. No one saw Pentecost coming. But Paul is declaring that the mystery has now been revealed. Surprise! And it now sheds light on everything else. Past, present, future. Oh, that's why you said that. Oh, that's why you did that. And it should change our disposition of fear and discouragement to joy and hope. That's why Paul, talking about the same thing in Colossians 1, he says this, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Which is Christ God himself in you. And that is the hope of glory. And no one saw this coming. It was a mystery. Yet Paul is saying it has now been revealed. But also it has now been realized in Christ Jesus, he says. Now what does that mean? Well, remember last week and what we've seen already today, that in Christ there's one person. And all those in Jesus have rightful access to the Father. As I said last week, one commentator 
said this, there is no, in Jesus, there is no Jewish boundary markers that demarcate the insiders from the outsiders. In his body, Jesus annulled the entire law system as the means of relating to God or of identifying who were members of God's covenantal community. In other words, Jesus is the end of the law. No one comes to God via the Jewish code anymore. Righteousness comes only by faith in Christ. This is why the Lord would say that there was coming a day when he would judge those only circumcised in the flesh. Thus, the Gentiles in Christ, through the blood of Jesus, have been brought near just like the believing Jews in Christ. Just as he said in Galatians, and as he says later in this book, in Jesus, all of us are one. We are one. We are one. Outside of Jesus, we're excluded. We're separated. We are foreigners and outsiders. We are hopeless and without God. But in Jesus, we are brought near. Both Jew and Gentile, all nations, all people become one, just as we saying earlier and read through jesus god changes us he transforms us he makes us into little sons and daughters who are born not of the flesh but who are born of god's and as he describes at the end of chapter two in a way a building we become the temple of the living god adrian rogers said it this way in the old testament god had a temple for his people in the new testament god has a people for his temple and Stephen, who was martyred in Acts, as we read, and Paul, they recognized what the Old Testament authors recognized. That the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. He does not live in houses made by man. The New Testament is very clear. God comes to live in us. To take us from dirty to clean, from impure to pure. From darkness to light, from death to life, to tear down the walls of hostility, replacing the two and making them one. In other words, the people of Jesus, Jew and Gentile, are a new creation in Jesus. Made not by the hands of flesh, but made by the hands of God. Born not of the flesh, but of God. Created by God, in God, and for God. This is the church. You say, well, how do I know that? Well, not only does Paul clearly say in chapter 2 that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, but even here he says in verse 11 that this mystery was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church was his eternal purpose. And that word that Paul used for realized means to make something new. In other words, his eternal purpose was to make something new, and he has done just that in Jesus by creating the church. In God, by God, for God. He was up to putting new wine into new wineskins, new cloth onto new garments, a new covenant in his blood. You are a new creation. As individuals, yes, but also as a people. A new humanity in Jesus. See, the new covenant is not so much about saving you from something, though it does. It saves you from sin and death and darkness and death and all that. But it's also about making you into something. A new creation in himself, the two becoming one. This was his eternal purpose. 
His mercy, his grace, his love that we've talked about, it moved him, it compelled him to fulfill this eternal purpose, to make a new humanity in Jesus. That mystery has been revealed, and it has been realized in Jesus. The new has come, Paul says. The old has gone. This new humanity, the church, the body of Jesus, is the wisdom of God on display for all creation to see. Now this is why he did what he did. Now this sheds light on everything else. And this new creation, the church we're talking about, is the bride of the Lamb. His great love. And we've talked about this a little bit, but when you get to Revelation 1.1, you read the revelation of Jesus Christ, or the revelation from Jesus Christ. That word revelation is where we get this word apocalypse, right? And that's just a fancy word that comes from the Greek, which means the unveiling of those things which had been veiled. In other words, it means a mystery now being revealed. And what is the big revelation all about? What is it leading to? Well, what is Paul saying that God's eternal purpose is? The church. So all you got to do is go to the end of the story, God's big left hook, his big surprise that makes clear everything else, the surprise moment. And it's given to us with a contrast. Revelation 17 and Revelation 21. You're given a picture of two women. And they contrast each other. In Revelation 17, Paul is take, or John is taken in the Spirit to a barren, dry, lifeless, dark wilderness. And there he is shown a prostitute. And then in Revelation 21, a clear contrast to Revelation 17, John is taken to a great high mountain. The highest point there is, and he has shown a bride. Both of these women are mysteries revealed. Matter of fact, in Revelation 17, 5, we're told that on the prostitute's forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, As one commentator said, the prostitute is like an archetype image for the great system of satanic evil. In other words, she is of Satan and from Satan. She is of the world and from the world. She is of the flesh and from the flesh. And all those who belong to her are outside of Christ. They live in a barren, lifeless, dark, dead reality and judgment is coming. The other is of God and from God. And she is the bride of the Lamb. And she is revealed from heaven in all her glory and splendor and beauty, pure and faithful to the Lord. And she is described like a city, much in the same way in which Ezekiel described a new temple. For she is a new creation, the bride of the Lamb, 
the crown of God's new creation, the wisdom of God on display, the multi-generational, multi-gifted, multi-ethnic new humanity in Jesus, those in God, by God, and for God. And in that moment, his eternal purpose will be fully revealed and realized, not in part, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, but in full. As John would say, we don't know what we will be like, but we know we will be like him. In other words, we are a new creation, now created in the image of Jesus. The mystery has been revealed and realized. But it's kind of a now-not-yet kind of moment. But clearly the party has begun. The question is, is which woman do we belong to? The prostitute or the bride? See, what Paul is writing here, for those in Jesus, this is good news for us. Jesus is Lord, and in Christ, we are heirs according to the promise. We stand justified. We stand redeemed. We stand forgiven, washed clean. We are his bride. We now stand as sons and daughters united in Jesus, this new creation. And this is why Paul would plead with his listeners, his readers, because of this hope, don't lose heart for what I'm suffering for you. Despite what you might see in the culture and in the world, despite what might happen to us, don't lose heart. For God has won the battle, the victory, it belongs to him. But for those outside of Jesus, banking on their knowledge, their status, their tradition, their works, their denomination, well, the New Testament's message is clear. Repent and be found in Jesus and in him alone or else. Be found belonging to the bride and not the prostitute. For judgment is coming. Think of it like this. I'll conclude with this illustration. If you traveled to Leinster Garden Street in London, this is what you would see. You'd be walking along, and if you didn't know anybody, you'd say, this just looks like a normal apartment building. A couple front doors leading upstairs to some houses. Looks normal. You'd say, it's like every other house on the street. But if you knew the mystery, if you knew the mystery, you would know as you're walking along that this is not a real house. Those doors you're looking at are fake doors. The windows above them and kind of to the right are painted on. They're not real windows. What you're looking at is just a five-foot thick wall facade. Not real. And what it's hiding is train fumes and railroad tracks. This is what it's hiding. You can see behind it. It was literally built to hide the filth or the noise of the railroad tracks. For those in Jesus, we belong to a living, breathing house of God, made by God, in God, for God. For those outside of Jesus, Jew or Gentile alike, they belong to a facade, only trying to hide their filth and prostitution with judgment coming. So which one do we belong to? With heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite John and the team forward. And the message Paul is trying to get 
to us in Ephesians 3 is hope, joy, for us to not lose heart, despite what we might endure, even if we sit in prison for the sake of the Lord. The mystery has been revealed and realized. God's eternal purpose, the church. So be full of joy and hope. The party has only just begun. But for those of us outside of Christ, perhaps even in this room, we'd better repent and be found in Christ and in Him alone. So which one are you? If you're in Christ, don't be full of fear and discouragement or despair, but joy and hope. And if you're in Christ, pray for those who are not, Jew and Gentile alike, that they would be found in Christ at His appearing. And if you're outside of Christ, man, let today be the day of your salvation. Repent and believe. For those who receive Jesus, He gives the right to become His children, born not of flesh, but of God. And even as I pray, you can come. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your eternal purpose, now revealed and realized in Christ Jesus. Something radically new that no one saw coming. A new humanity created in the image of Jesus. Father, bring unity, bring joy, bring hope to those in Christ, to the church and to our church, this local body of believers. And if there's somebody outside of Christ today, Lord, I pray that they would repent and believe in Jesus and become a member of his body. We thank you for the church. We thank you for the bride of the Lamb and what you have done to save us, to redeem us, to justify us, to change us, to transform us, to bring about the new. In Christ's name I pray. I'm going to ask that you stand with me. Hey, if you need to come down and pray at these steps, you need to talk to me about salvation. Just, you got a prayer request, something about the church. You come down during this time or just sing these words together. There is a Redeemer, but you stand with us in this time of invitation. There is a Redeemer.